Let's reopen our Bibles to Romans chapter 3 for a few minutes before we come to the Lord's table. Oh, what a hopeless situation these verses put us in. But our hope is all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a safe place. And when we say hope, we do not mean a maybe possibility of salvation occurring. But as Romans 8 defines hope for us, we with certainty, wait for its fulfillment. Not its possibility, but its certain fulfillment. Let me read to you these verses again. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen Amen and amen. Verse 19 tells us that the law says all these things to the Jews to get them down to the same level as the Gentiles so that every mouth may be stopped. Now, while I have applied that directly and primarily to the Jews, it applies to us as well. I can tell you that you will have nothing of value that will profit you in the day of judgment from your mouth. I do read in God's holy word of men saying some things in the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works and in thy name have cast out devils? And Jesus said, Then will I answer unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. If you understand Romans 1, 2, and 3 correctly, as far as we have progressed, your mouth is stopped. There is nothing you can say for yourself. In this world... When we do something wrong, and it's our parents that are finding us at fault and sit as judges, we make all sorts of appeals. When my parents would approach me with an instrument of discipline, or my brother, or my sister, it was amazing the howling that we could set up, of the anguish and pain that we were in before they ever touched us, in the hopes that pity would be extracted from their hearts, and they might call off the day of judgment. Or at least only hit us with a few blows. 
But there will be no such with the Lord God of heaven. We have sinned heinously and grievously. There are no exceptions to His judgment. And He is perfectly holy and just as He executes that judgment. You may have appealed to a school teacher. You may have appealed to a boss before of misunderstanding or other excuses to justify your behavior, but there will be none of that with the Lord. Every mouth needs to be stopped. But I do want to make clear that the mouths that are considered here primarily and directly are the mouths of the Jews saying, in verse 9, are we better than they? What then? Are we better than they? Because you told us that we are blessed and with many advantages, much every way, chiefly the Scriptures, are we better than they Gentiles? That mouth needed to be stopped, and Paul did it. And Paul said, it's stopped by your own Scriptures. Then, he said, in verse 19, that all the world may become guilty before God. It's not that there was the Gentile world already guilty, and the Jewish world not so guilty, but that all the world, Jews and Gentiles, would become guilty before God. And here is the bottom line conclusion. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now, who was that directed to? The Jews, primarily. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Not by the law is justification from sin, but by the law comes the knowledge of sin, because as in these six quotations, it shows us all to be sinners. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 7, do you know why the law was given? To show sin being exceeding sinful. That's the purpose of the law. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, if there had been a law given that could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But there was no law given that could give life because no man can keep the terms of the law. So the law just condemns men. It doesn't justify men. So those poor Jews were wearing around the means of their condemnation on their foreheads and on their arms. And what they were resting in was to their judgment and condemnation because they couldn't keep it. Those are the... The two verses that draw this whole argument and this shorter argument that we're dealing with today to a close. Verses 19 and 20. Now there are six quotations. Let's go back and take care of the first one before we go to the Lord's table. The first one is found in verses 10 through 12. It's Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. If you have a center column of references, it should be there in your Bible. These three verses in Romans chapter 3 are 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Because the thought process of those that Paul's addressing these verses to, the thought process of the Jews, was that they were exceptions. That God was going to show them a greater degree of mercy because they were His chosen people. And so they ask, are we better than they, in verse 9. And Paul brings the Scriptures to bear on them. His most powerful argument yet is to apply their own Scriptures against them as these verses written by David the psalmist about other Jews. He brings these scriptures to bear. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
Now over in Psalm 14.1, it says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, shows us that good and righteousness may be transposed or used alternatively as synonyms in this particular place. But Paul adds a little bit by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, no, not one, to make sure you understand the definition of none. Because the definition of none is no, not one. And so Paul opens up and he closes with that. Here, as he quotes these three verses out of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, as it is written, there is none righteous. The whole issue at stake is righteousness. See, they asked, what advantage then hath the Jew? Verse 1. What profit is there of circumcision? Paul would say much every way, but he didn't mean righteousness. He meant only national privilege. Advantages of having God as your God, assisting you in battle, assisting you in all sorts of ways, giving you the greatest code of laws the world had ever seen, so on and so forth. The prophets of God ministering to you, the poets of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel, all the heroes that God raised up, miraculous accomplishments on the battlefield, all these different advantages, yes, you have. But when it comes to righteousness, you have none over the Gentiles because your own scriptures say to you, there is none righteous. No, not one. David addressing the nation under him. There is none righteous. No, not one. The lack of goodness that Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 define as corruption and abominable works and abominable iniquity describes the lack of righteousness. Before God, without Jesus Christ's righteousness, according to this verse, there's none righteous. And instead, according to Psalm 14, 1 and 53, 1, we are corrupt and we are abominable. Right. And this is how the Lord sees us. And this is how Paul wanted the Jews to see themselves from their own scriptures. So he starts out as it is written and uses Psalm 14, 1. No, not one. Verse 11. There is none that understandeth. We've already been through this verse because we opened with Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, excuse me, earlier today. I get the two of them mixed up as you would, twins sometimes, because they're, they're twin psalms, because they say the same thing with just a few words altered. But here in verse 11, there is none that understandeth. And as I explained to you earlier today, and I want to repeat myself for your understanding and your retention, men understand many things. They may understand mathematics, and they may understand mechanical things. They may understand electrical things, but they do not understand spiritual things. They do not understand the importance of a creator God and their righteousness to measure up to his acceptance. They do not seek him out. That's the next phrase. They do not set him up as the creator. They do not give him the glory that he deserves. They do not live by his righteous standard for their lives, nor do they even inquire about it. They have no understanding that there is a holy God that is going to judge them. And the lack of understanding is a choice of rebellion against a God that would dictate the terms of their lives. And you and I fight this battle every single day of our lives because we have a nature within us that does not want to retain the knowledge of God inside because we want to do things our way. And that's when we sin. And so we need to repudiate and recommit ourselves right now. We need to repudiate that error. And we need to recommit ourselves right now to doing what God said. 
and by His holy standard. There is none that understandeth. What is this understanding? It is the comprehension and knowledge of a Creator God that ought to be feared and loved and a righteous and holy God that ought to be obeyed very carefully and very diligently. How do we know this is the sense? Because what is Paul dealing with in the, in the context around it? What was David dealing with? They have no knowledge of God. Right. Remember his enemies? When David said in verse 4, have, have they no knowledge? Do they not understand that while they're picking on the righteous, they are going against the apple of God's eye? They did not have a knowledge of God and his dealings in the affairs of men and how they ought to sub- submit themselves to him. Is man truly this bad? I mean, when it says there is none that understandeth, is man truly that bad? Do you really believe that? You better believe it. When God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, should they have believed that? When the devil said, thou shalt not surely die, should they have believed that? No. That cost them. And if you don't believe this, it's going to cost you and your theological understanding of the book of Romans. We get started right here. You want to get the Romans road? Well, the Romans road better pass through Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, which means that you, you cannot and should not ask some sinner to say a rote prayer in order to be born again. Because it says, there is none that understandeth. If there's none that understandeth, then there's no way to appeal to them. There's no way to present the gospel to them. There's no dog and pony show that you can give them to cause them to believe. Why, Abraham told the rich man that even if Lazarus were to come back from the dead, it would not move his brothers at all. Because there is none that understandeth. And that was the father of the Jews to a Jew. There is none that understandeth. This is where we start with the doctrine of salvation. Do you understand that about our religion and our gospel? We start right here. Do you, are you surprised about the first point in our, the, the seven proofs of unconditional salvation? What might the first proof be? That man is unable and unwilling to do anything pleasing to God. That is where we start because that's where Paul started. Before Paul got to your favorite chapter 8, he got to chapter 1, 2, and 3, where he condemned us all so that we would fully appreciate chapter 8. Don't you like the first verse a little bit better after reading 1, 2, and 3 with understanding? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Whoa! Romans 8, 1 just gets blown up and magnified because of Romans chapters 1 through 3. There is none that understandeth. This is an inspired fact of divine revelation, and it's confirmed by all human experience and human history. Men have no regard for God. Does the rest of the Bible teach this? The Bible says in Psalm 10 and verse 4, God is not in all their thoughts. Does that sound like they don't understand? In Psalm 10, 4, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, why did God judge the world with a flood? Here's what he had to say about the character of those men. And the character hasn't changed because the same bloodline flows right on through Noah and his three sons. Noah was drunk as soon as he got off the ark. His one son went look and looked on him in his nakedness, and his son was judged for it in the chapters that follow the flood. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was very great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
I think I need to read that again for you. Did you understand that it was quite extensive in his indictment of the human race? God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But for the grace of God, there go we. Now you say to yourself, but I've known men that were that didn't have any fear of God, and they didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've, I've watched them do good things. You are not looking at the heart, so you are missing the whole issue. The good things that they're doing could be done for the praise of men. The good things they're doing could be done for a promotion on the job. The good things they're doing could be because somebody held them up with a gun and told them to do them. The good things they're doing might be because their wife told them, no sugar for you, daddy, until you do this. You have no idea of the motives in their lives for what they've done. God looks upon the heart and he says, the plowing of the wicked is sin. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And he that cometh to God must believe two things. He is, and He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Otherwise, what you thought was righteousness is not righteousness. So we still believe there is none that understandeth. And and we see God looking upon the earth in Genesis chapter 6 and seeing that. Do other scriptures confirm the fact that men do not understand and will not understand? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. How in the world can the preaching of the cross become the means of salvation to the perishing? I'd sing rescue the perishing, except it wouldn't sound very good. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. There is none that understandeth. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God made all the difference between how a person responds to the gospel. There is no overhead show or visual aids that we can use to help a man receive the gospel because the Bible says there is none that understandeth. And he's writing that to Jews. Written by a Jew. The prophet David. How then can sinners hear the gospel, believe, and be saved? They must be born again first. By a sovereign, monergistic work of God. Remember that word that I gave you this morning? Because you may run into it. There's a huge website called Monergism. It's all about the sovereignty of God and regeneration and election and saving of men, although it veers off toward the Calvinist ditch. But it's called monergism. I want you just to know the word. Monergism means one. A monotheist is somebody believing in one God. Monergism is there's only one operator in our regeneration, and it's God Himself. Synergism is man cooperating with God in order to be saved by their joint efforts. God does the drawing. Man does the responding. Well, listen, man wouldn't respond even to the Holy Ghost in his natural state. Can I prove that with the Bible? 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Until we are born of the Spirit and given a spiritual new man, 
The things of God are foolishness to us. We do not understand. That's why it says in Romans 3 and verse 11, there is none that understandeth. The way that sinners can hear the gospel, believe, and know they're going to be saved is because God regenerates them first and then brings the gospel to them and they hear it, believe it, and have the assurance of their salvation by what they find there. The scriptures are full of this. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. That's John chapter 8, verse 47. Why can ye not understand my speech? I'll tell you why. There is none that understandeth. John eight forty three. Jesus reasoning with the Jews that were there that he called the children of the devil. This verse declares the great doctrine of human depravity. And it better be dealt with fully before we go further and try to understand the origin of faith, the nature of faith, the source of faith, the purpose of faith, the role of faith, and what is faith described in chapters 3 and 4. We start right here. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, man does not have faith by himself. God must give it to him. totally denies the doctrine of conditional election, that God chose those that he looked ahead in time and saw were going to accept Jesus as their Savior, so he decided to choose them after they chose him. That's conditional election. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches unconditional election. If we understand these verses properly, we get through reading them and we know there's only one way to be saved. God's got to choose us. There's got to be the doctrine of election. It's like falling off a log. And... God must regenerate us apart from ourselves because there's no cooperating with these kind of men. Look at the, look at the way that they're described by the Apostle Paul and he just hammers it home with six rapid texts that he quotes from the Old Testament. As it is written, there is none that seeketh after God is the last condemnation in verse 11 and it comes from Psalm 14 2 and Psalm 53 2. What is seeking God? It is man realizing he's but a creature and seeking unto his creator to worship and love him and to find out what he ought to do to please him more perfectly. Adam wouldn't even do it in the Garden of Eden. Man haven't done it since, except by the grace of God. The Bible tells ministers in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the last three verses, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God... Peradventure will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The whole issue of a man repenting and seeing and acknowledging the truth as it is in Jesus Christ is by God granting the gift of repentance. And if God withholds that gift of repentance, that man will never repent. He cannot repent because he doesn't even seek after God. He's only seeking the satisfaction of his own lusts in this world. There is none that seeketh after God. There is not a whole world out there of seeking men who want to be saved. There are elect out there that want to know the truth. They're like Cornelius. They're praying to God always. They're giving much alms to the people. And they're fearing God with all their house. And they needed to hear the gospel. So Paul would say in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things. For the elect's sakes. They're the ones that God has prepared to hear the truth. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended unto the things spoken by Paul. 
There is none that seeketh after God. What an indictment. You know we could just hang right here on this 11th verse of Romans chapter 3. But you want to remember it if you're ever dealing with an Arminian that is proposing any type of a cooperative plan of salvation or a synergistic plan of salvation where man needs to do his part in order to be able, in order to be saved, you need to remind them that from Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says when Paul is making a concerted effort to prove that there is no righteousness, no ability on the part of man to cooperate with God in his justification, that it says there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And if you need help on the definition of none, it's given in verse 10 and it's given in verse 12. No, not one. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. How many of them? All. This comes from Psalm 14.3 and Psalm 53.3. We read this this morning as well. There are none following God or seeking God, no, not one, in the way that he set for man. And that started in Eden. It was true at the flood, and it's ever been true. And I believe that every one of you know it is true by experience in your own lives that you are not always following God according to His way. There's only one way to worship God in the world, and it's called the way. They are all gone out of the way. God gave Adam and Eve the way to please Him. Of all the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat of it. That was the way to please God. They sinned against the way. Let me read the indictment in the days of the flood. You know, the Lord, the Lord was pretty plain to Noah as to why he was going to send the flood. Here's what he had to say. This is about six verses after the verse I read to you a few minutes ago. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Listen. For all flesh, Jews and Gentiles, there weren't any Jews yet. All flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. God's way that had been revealed orally by the patriarchs, to the patriarchs, and from the patriarchs to their children, that had been revealed by conscience and natural law, they had departed from His way. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. And isn't that exactly the word we read in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53? They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. There was one way to worship God then, and men had corrupted it. And so when we come back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 12, it says they are all gone out of the way. The emphasis here by Paul, wanting these Jews to pick up on, is there were no exceptions. The Jews were not an exception. In fact, David had written these two words to Jews. They are all gone out of the way. The history of Israel shows the Jews leaving God's way. You know, these Jews that would have been hearing this should have understood. When you read in the book of Judges, what does it say? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like it was his way? It was their way. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 8. It says it a couple of times in the book of Judges. They had corrupted the way of God. How many? All. How many Jews? All. 
They are all gone out of the way. This is the Apostle Paul pulling the Jewish scriptures to bear on the Jews to show them that they, right along with the Gentiles, equally so, without any advantage, not being better than they, according to the question of verse 9, were condemned before God. And he's doing a right, beautiful way of doing it. How many ways please God? Let's not forget this as we pass from this verse. How many ways please God? One way. There is only one way to please God. Does Ephesians chapter 4 tell us that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism? It does, doesn't it? And that's the way we want. There's one way. Can we agree to disagree? No way. There is one way. And they are all gone out of His way. This is the indictment of the race that we find ourselves in. Next clause. Romans 3, 12b. They are together become unprofitable. This is also from Psalm 14, 3 and 53, 3. They are together become unprofitable. Who are they? It's the Jews that David addressed and it's the whole human race indirectly. They did it together. Are there any exceptions? Were there any that said, I don't want to go along with the crowd. I want to be different and take a stand for his way. No, it says they are together become unprofitable. What is that unprofitability in Psalm 53 and Psalm 14? Filthy. They became filthy together. We all agreed together as a race that we were going to corrupt God's way upon the earth and we were going to become filthy together. There were no exceptions to it. No one stood up and said, stop. We should not be doing that. But we did it together. And as I mentioned to you earlier this morning, there could be a secondary sense, and I believe it's definitely secondary, that we became corrupt together in Adam. But this is talking about the guilt of those in David's day. They are all gone out of the way. Those enemies that he was addressing that were alive at that time, and they had together, there was no exceptions. If it wasn't for grace, there would be no exceptions. We would all be together in the matter. All together in the matter are the words used. They are together become unprofitable. What is unprofitable? It's a neat figure. I've already told you what it is in Psalm 14 and 53. Can you remember what word I just used? Filthy. But what is it? It's meiosis. It's the opposite of hyperbole. It's a neat figure of speech. Wait a few weeks, men, or a few months when we get to the figures of speech. What's hyperbole? An intentional exaggeration to make a point that the reader understands is not to be taken literally, but makes a very strong point. Is the Bible full of hyperbole? It's full of hyperbole. How many cities do you think were literally walled up to heaven? What do you think the highest wall was? Forty feet? I'm just throwing out numbers. When the Bible says that the camp of the, the, the host of the Midianites was as the sand which is by the seashore, how many cubic inches of sand do you think he was talking about? I would say less than one. If you've, David said his tears made his bed to swim. Now that's some heavy crying at night. When your bed starts swimming and doing a backstroke around the, the bedroom, that's a lot of tears. That's hyperbole. The Bible's full of it. Meiosis is the opposite. An intentional understatement to make you think about what he is saying so that you'll think about the point. And here we have in the middle of Romans 3.12, they are together become unprofitable. Well, we just didn't become unprofitable. We became filthy. But it gets your attention. I love the Word of God. It's a real figure of speech. This isn't the only place in the Bible that it's used. 
More on that another time. We became filthy by comparing it with the scripture that it's quoted from. They are all together become filthy. 14.3 They are all together become filthy. 53.3 Last clause of verse 12. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. How many exceptions are to the, to the rule of the all that's in the first clause of verse 12 and the together in the second clause of verse 12? How many exceptions are there? There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Notice how Paul has it at the end of his quotation from Psalm 14 and 53, and he has it at the beginning, which David didn't give, but the Holy Spirit gave, because the point is very powerful and very necessary that the Jews could not make an exception for themselves from this condemnation here. So it starts out in 10, there is none righteous, no, not one, and it ends in 12, there is none good, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Paul stressing that there are no exceptions to shut the mouths of those who are saying, are we better than they? No, not one of you is better than they. No, we're all gone out of the way. Jews and Gentiles, all the Jews are gone out of the way. They are together become filthy or unprofitable. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. What is good? We've already seen a synonym used. It's righteous. He uses righteous in 10. He uses good in 12. What is good? It's doing what is appropriate based on God's definition. Or God's standard. But that is also a definition for righteousness. Doing what is appropriate or right by the definition of God. That's what righteousness is. So here we stand. And this is as far as we can go today. Romans 3, 10 through 12. The question came up in Romans 3, 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Paul answers in verse 2. Much every way. He answers three objections of theirs in verses 3 through 8. And then in 9, he goes back to that original question. Because he had told the Jews much, every way we have an advantage by being Jews, because he had told them that in verse 2, in verse 3 he raises a question going back to verse 1. What then? Are we better than they? The Jews continuing to ask, are we better than the Gentiles? Paul says, no in no wise. There is no legal difference between a Jew or a Gentile. No in no wise do you have more righteousness than the Gentiles do. For we have before proved, meaning chapters 1 and 2 is when we before proved it, that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. And then he brings the scriptures to bear on them, as it is written, and he takes up the first quotation from Psalm 53, 1 through 3, and 14, 1 through 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become filthy or unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Is that powerful? Yes. When, you, when you rested in the law and you made your boast of the law and Paul waited for two whole chapters before he pulled the law out of his back pocket because his purpose was to shut their mouths. And I hope he has shut our mouths except to open them with one, for one purpose. Yes. To praise and thank his wonderful grace. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. Greater than Romans 3, 10 through 12. Because Jesus Christ understood everything, and it is by His knowledge 
that my righteous servant shall justify many. Go read the last three verses of Isaiah 53. By his knowledge, I may not have any, naturally speaking, but he sought after God. He came to do the will of God. He did understand. He was righteous. He had not gone out of the way with all the rest. He, he took every temptation head on without sin. And we have that as our Savior, and that's who we remember at the Lord's Supper. Brethren, this passage is so fantastic. What we just had in those three verses is a definition of total depravity given by the Holy Spirit of God, pulled out of the Old Testament, applied primarily to Jews, but we understand how necessary it is as we go into the rest of chapter 3. Faith cannot originate in these kind of men. God must put faith there. And should we be surprised that it would say in places like 2 Peter chapter 1, you who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We obtain faith by a gift from God or we wouldn't have it. We would still be in this condition. But God has changed us. Praise His great and glorious name. The general definition is given in verses 10 through 12 of total depravity. There's none righteous. There's none that understandeth. There's... Does he use that word a lot? There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out there. Together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Then he goes after our bodily members. He uses some quotations to go after your tongue four times. It's in verses 13 and 14. He wants to go after your speech, and he's going to tear us down by our speech and show us that there is no man that can stand before God because of this wicked member that is set on fire of hell that is between our gums. Then, the violence of verse 15 and how fast we are to jump on other people and want to commit violence. 16, everywhere we go we leave misery and pain and destroy relationships. Verse 17, we're not peacemakers the way we should be. And he's quoting from all over the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, six quotations in these few little verses. And he comes up with a summary out of Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is where you start if you're going to talk about salvation. Don't tell me about every man has a free will. How free is it based on this definition? How free is it based on these verses? There is none, 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 no, not one, except the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom belongs all honor and glory, blessing and power, riches and praise forever and ever. And let's sing that as we approach the Lord's table. Amen.